nations will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been, is, and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. Well, good morning, Riverview. How are you guys doing today? It's a beautiful Sunday today, yeah? Nice and sunny, not too, not too uh, humid or whatever. Um, sorry that Ethan could not be here, uh, here today. You guys are stuck with me for two weekends in a row. So, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, a little self-deprecating humor to start a day. So, anyways, it's my favorite type of humor. Um, <clears throat> So <laughs> my name is Young. If you are new to our church today, uh, glad that you're here. Welcome. Hope you got a nice cup of coffee, uh, was welcomed. Maybe you found someone new today. Uh, you are finding us again in our uh, Daniel series called Still. And today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up to uh, Daniel chapter 4. We're going to actually read towards the back end of Daniel here to start our time off in verse 34 through 35. Or you can use your Bible app on your phone or tablet or whatever. Or you can follow along on the TV screen, on the screens on the sides. We're going to read some scripture to start our time off. So let's dive in. Daniel 4, 34 through 35. It says this, but at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? What a powerful revelation that King Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, has had. And I would love to pray that over us for us to come to a similar conclusion about the reality of this world that we may live in and perhaps even our own lives. So uh, would you join me in praying? <clears throat> as, I, as we uh, pray together, let me pray for you guys, pray for myself and our time uh, and our church family today. So let's pray. Lord, we are um, just mere people here today um, asking for your help. Uh, we ask, Father, for your help uh, in our times of need, in our times of joy. Uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for all that you have provided, for you are the great provider of our lives, whether we realize it or not, Lord. Um, I pray for my friends and my family here. Um, I do not know what some of uh, the people here may be going through in their lives, difficulties, joys, victories, struggles, but whatever it may be, Father, I pray, Father, that we would find comfort in knowing that you, O oh Lord, have control. May you fill us with humility on this morning through your spirit and through your word. And as we hear the gospel through your word here in Daniel 4, I pray, Father, that we would come to know you better, clearer, 
um, and to understand your heart towards us, Lord. Uh, we love you so much, Father, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in, uh, <clears throat> in Greek mythology, um, there is the story of Narcissus or Narcissus, and he is the son of a Greek god. And uh, the story, there are different renditions of the story of Narcissus. And one of the stories, uh, one of the versions of it, at least, is that he's hunting through the woods, hunting through the forest, and he's running, running, running. And then he needs to get a drink of water, and so he stops by a pond, and what does he do? He kneels down, stoops down, and he, uh, this beautiful man, right? He was known in Greek mythology to be very good-looking, very handsome, very beautiful. He takes a look in the, in the, in the pond and sees his reflection. And as, if you know the story of Narcissus, he ends up falling deeply in love with himself, right? I mean, like, you know, I, I, listen, if you are bald like me, which is very small population here, it's just, you know, you, 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 you cleanly shave your head. You look at the mirror like, man, you look good. You feel good, right? Bald and beautiful. I don't know if he was bald, but he was beautiful. Anyway, so he looks in the pond, sees his reflection, and he falls in love with his own image. And there are different stories, right, versions of the story. And the one I come to enjoy the most is that he actually tries to embrace his own reflection And upon doing that, he distorts the water and he comes to realize he can never tangibly feel the love that he has for himself. But that reflection comes back. And as the story goes, um, one of the versions again is that he stares at the mirror or at at the pond at his reflection for so long that he ends up literally withering away. He never moves from that spot. And the beauty of the story of Narcissus is that uh, despite his self-indulgence is that a flower from that spot ends up popping up in replace of him. If you didn't catch it already, the story of Narcissus is where we get the word narcissism or narcissist. The DSM-5 explains that people with narcissistic personality disorder or NPD uh, is characterized with several, many, actually many different traits. I'm going to name three in particular. Uh, is that they are characterized with a persistent manner of grandiosity, a continuous desire for admiration, along with, interestingly enough, a lack of empathy. Dr. Chuck DeGroat, he's a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. In his book titled, When Narcissism Comes to Church, that's been one of my favorite reads for the summer because he actually talks about ministers who are narcissists and that ministers tend to be narcissistic or have some sort of tendencies. It's very humbling to read that, right? He briefly explains that narcissism is not so much about the infatuation of the self, but rather his conclusion is that narcissism is rather an attempt for one to hide the shame they carry. So let me say that again. His conclusion for narcissism, people with NPD, is that they have some sort of shame that they carry from their life, and the narcissism is developed over time to cover that shame. It's the boosting of the ego to combat shame in their life. Renaissance philosopher Marsilio Ficino commented on the myth of narcissists, the Greek myth. He says this, narcissists did not suffer from an overabundance of self-love, but rather from its deficiency. 
The myth is actually a parable about paralysis, the youth who first appears in restless motion, keep in mind he was a hunter, right? He was running through the woods, is suddenly rooted to one spot, unable to leave the elusive spirit. If Narcissus had possessed real self-love, he would have been able to leave his fascination. The, this curse of Narcissus is immobilization, not out of self-love for himself, but out of dependency, please hear this last part, but out of dependency upon his image. Today we are uh, not talking about self-love. Let me just make that very clear. But we are going to talk about this idea of narcissism, or to a lesser degree, pride. Because if you're anything like me, you may struggle with pride or some level of narcissism at one point or another in your life. In Daniel 4, we find King Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylonian king, recall an experience that he had in his life um, that very well may have changed the trajectory of his life. Right? He recounts this dream that was frightening, that was alarming. So he calls the different magicians, the different, uh, the different ministers, the different mediums, the people that he believed could interpret his dream, and yet they could not interpret it again until the Jewish protagonist of the book of Daniel, named Daniel, or Belteshazzar, comes up and he interprets his dream. One thing to know if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the book of Daniel, is that this is the second time that Daniel successfully interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We see this happen in chapter 2, where he interprets the first dream. And so what we're going to do is that we're going to actually read through this dream. It's a bit lengthy, seven verses. So please pay close attention, because there's actually a lot of vivid imagery here. So hopefully it's not too boring of a dream. Maybe he had some NyQuil before he slept and uh, had some vivid dream here, right? It's pretty good. Verses 10 through 17, all right? In the visions of my mind as I was lying in bed, I saw this. This is King Nebuchadnezzar talking. He's talking to uh, Daniel. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong, and its tops reached the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. And he called out loudly. This is the watcher talking. Cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers. Sounds a bit ominous. And the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest people over them. Daniel 4, 10 through 17. 
There are two essential sections, if I can have the chart up here, two essential sections to uh, this dream. The first is that we see that there is a large and strong tree, abundant life, and food for all. That's section one. That's the first part of the dream. And you see that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar kind of explains the second part of the dream, which is that there is this watcher, and this watcher declares this tree to be cut that the fruit to be scattered, life to be gone, that this tree is to be made into a stump in the ground, and then that this man's mind is to be changed from that of a human's to an animal's. And I'm thankful also for the way that Daniel 4 is written because uh, we are not left to our own vices and our own imagination to interpret this dream. Because I don't know how you would have interpreted it (laughs) on your own. I know how I would have. I won't share it, but... um, Daniel 4 actually explains the interpretation that Daniel had, right? The interpretation is this. If you look in verse 22, this tree is actually King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He became strong and great. His Babylonian empire actually expanded to the ends of the earth, right? It just conquered many nations and tribes. And then the second part of this dream is interpreted where King Nebuchadnezzar will be driven away from the people to live with animals. He will eat like the animals. He will share the plants of the earth like the animals. He'll be drenched with dew from the sky. And then in verse 26, we see later, if we read further, that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will be restored as soon as possible on one condition. If he acknowledges that heaven rules over all. A mighty big condition for a king like Nebuchadnezzar. And I love that the Bible is actually straight up honest in a lot of what it has to say. um, And it actually tells us, uh, you might be wondering, did this happen to King Nebuchadnezzar? Did Daniel's interpretation happen to King Nebuchadnezzar? If you have your Bibles open and you read down to verse 28, literally this is what it says. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm like, this is, this is like doing my job for me. I don't, have to, like, I don't have to exegete this passage like in that way. I don't have to exposit it. It literally says all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And even better, it tells us how it happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29 through 31. At the end of 12 months, 12 months, As he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, you idiot. No, no, just... King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. Twelve months after the interpretation is given. Listen, I don't know about you guys, right? I don't, I I live in an apartment, so like I don't have like my own lawn to mow. But like, you know, when you like garden or like mow your lawn, like I I would help out with my parents' place. And sometimes you, you know, you take a look back and you're like, Man, I did a really good job. Sometimes you got to, you know, give yourself a little ego boost. And this is what this guy does, right? 
But with us, we don't have this interpretation of like, hey, don't do the ego boost or else you're going to be sent out from your home, right? But this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar, that after a crazy dream that was frightening and alarming as it was for him, he's still filled with pride. And the interpretation that Daniel gave was a warning. And it did not phase our guy here. I mean, look at, take a look at verse 30 again, okay? Right, he's walking around the royal palace, making his claims. This is what he says. Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? He says this 12 months, one whole year after what seems to be a life-changing dream. And then what we see is that all of this actually happens. All of what Daniel interprets happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's chapter four. That's it. That's a wrap. That's chapter four. And we could kind of sort of end here And we can come out with several morals or lessons or principles from this story. Maybe one of them is, you know, don't boast about your successes while walking on your roof or patio. You know, if you live in Michigan, you know, I don't know how many of us walk on our roofs, right? Maybe it's don't be prideful or else God will turn you into a beast. Or maybe a principle is, you know, maybe it's good. This is the second chapter that happened. Maybe it's good to just have someone in your inner circle who can interpret dreams for you, right? Maybe that's a principle. Side note, one time in college, a very charismatic pastor, like he was charismatic in preaching, but also charismatic theologically, pointed to me and said, you have the gift of interpreting dreams. So I said, you know what, that's really cool, man. And so if you, you know, need a dream interpreted, I might be your guy, all right? Um, But really, though, like, let's talk about it if you actually have a dream that, you know. So maybe, maybe those are the things we pull. I don't know, right? I do think it's important for us to examine the dream and the interpretation and find, I think, there's something a little bit deeper than perhaps just the idea of don't boast about your success or, you know, increase your ego or whatever, So when we look at this dream and we see this interpretation, I I want us to actually take a look at Genesis chapter one through three, all right? Chapter one verses, uh, chapter one, two, and three, right? When we take a look at this dream, the first part of this dream, we see that there's this large and strong tree, abundant for life, it provides shelter, it produces lots of fruits. What we see in Genesis chapter one and the parallel to what we know as the creation account, we see several parallels to Genesis one. The story of Genesis one through two is also though, not simply the creation account, but specifically, please pay attention here because this is important. It is a story about humanity, about creation or, or about humans having dominion over creation, right? They have control, they have authority, they have responsibility, they have dominion over creation. It is to rule the earth on God's behalf to produce life from life 
and to attend to the things that he has created in the Garden of Eden. We find abundant life. We find flying creatures. We find uh, creatures swimming in the water. We find creatures crawling on the land. We find abundant fruit and food to eat. We also find two trees, the tree of life, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, the first section of this dream is that there is a large and strong tree, abundant life, food for all. This is, again, paralleled to what? The Babylonian Empire. And the question we have to ask, if that is the parallel, is could Babylon actually produce life? In our 21st century connotation of Babylon, when we use it in conversation, does it have a positive connotation? No. We say things like we are, as Christians, living in a 21st century version of Babylon, and that's not a good thing, right? The question is, could Babylon actually give life? And my response to that, according to this part of the dream, is yes, but on one condition. It is what Daniel or the watcher said, if they would humble themselves before God. Every institution has the opportunity to rule with life and dignity for all. And the first step is to humble themselves before God and his ways. So for us here today, there are people here, right, in our church family that work in different, so many different spaces in our society, different institutions, government, school, um, you know, I don't know, other places like tech departments, churches, so many different institutions that exist in our world today that you work in. And the question is, can the institution that you're a part of actually produce life? And the answer is yes, but on one condition, if they would humble themselves before God. And the question is, how can you bring that life? How can you bring that humility in the spaces that you may occupy? And how can you lead them to the ways of God? More on this in a little bit. The second part of the dream that we see here, right, when we bring that chart back up here, is that the watcher is the messenger, watcher is the one who proclaims what God is essentially trying to communicate to King Nebuchadnezzar. Excuse me. So what is a watcher? Sounds kind of creepy. Sounds kind of like Big Brother-ish, right? Like the eye of heaven, like the eye of Mordor, but like good, you know? What is the watcher? Um, Well, from my studies on this, uh, because I didn't know what it was either, um, it was, it's not an angel. They're like cousins, Okay, so they're like cousins of an angel. This is actually the only time that in the Hebrew Bible it shows up. It shows up only once here in Daniel 4. Um, Also, this pops up once in the book of Enoch, but that's not in the Bible. So we're not going to, you know, we don't really read from that. Um, It also has delegated authority in the heavens, which is why it is able to make this proclamation on behalf of heaven to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so from this watcher... He makes this proclamation. And Daniel's interpretation is of the tree being cut, the leaves and the fruit are scattered, uh, animals and birds are fleeing, this tree is chopped down into a stump with the roots in the ground, a band of iron and bronze around it. It, All of this meant what? 
that King Nebuchadnezzar was going to be cut off from his kingdom. He will be driven away from his people to live with the animals. If you're reading your Bible from verse 15 and 16, you'll see a progression, a degression, really, um, of this tree, strong tree that is now chopped, turned into a stump, but then all of a sudden, it goes from a tree into explaining that it's a man. But then this man also then turns into a beast. What is the point of this? I believe the significance of this is that there is an intentional parallel. It's the interpreta- It's the watcher's attempt to show King Nebuchadnezzar that you very well are this strong tree, but then you turn into this man, right? This reference of this man, but this man who has always been you, right? This tree that's always been you now is a beast that will roam the earth. You w- once had dominion over the earth, and now you will become like the creation that you once had dominion over. Daniel's interpretation, right? He interprets this whole stump part of the dream and we see that it actually happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. He goes delusional. Um, and I, I found some study on this. Um, some psychologists report that, that maybe he went into, he developed some sort of like psychosis with this, right? He goes delusional as he's out of the kingdom and he grazes on the grass, literally thinking that he is an animal. If I can get that chart back up, actually, we see again this parallel to Genesis chapters one through three where once Adam and Eve, they had dominion over creation in the Garden of Eden. But then what, 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 what happens? Eve, she eats the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She's filled with pride. She wants to be like God. She falls into the temptation that Satan gives to her because the pride and the desire to be like God is so enticing. And much like King Nebuchadnezzar, as he's expelled from his kingdom, we see that... Adam and Eve are also expelled from the Garden of Eden. What happens when we are puffed up with pride and think that we can live in the ways that we desire? God shows us through King Nebuchadnezzar's transformation that from, uh, from a mind of a man to the mind of a beast, that when we do not humble ourselves before God, please pay attention here, we become this part human, part primal beast mutant, and we no longer have dominion over creation, but rather creation actually has dominion over us. Why? Because I believe that living life with pride actually leads to a life dictated by a morality separate from the morals of God. Because when you are puffed up with pride, when you are puffed up with ego, when you are puffed up with narcissism, you believe that your ways are better than, in this case, the moral lawmaker's ways. And that moral lawmaker, we believe, to be the God of the Bible. And the last time I checked, a lot of our morals are informed by our primal instincts. We end up switching our morals to accommodate our actions that benefit us in the end. Because at the end of the day, pride, narcissism, ego lives to protect itself. And if you want to protect yourself, you need to change your morals. 
So why does God give King Nebuchadnezzar this dream? I had to ask myself this question. Why does he give King Nebuchadnezzar this dream? If you go back to verse 17, it explains the reason why. In Daniel 4, verse 17, it says this. This word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high ruler is over human kingdoms. That's the reason why. This is so that the living will know that the most high ruler is over, ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest people over them. Please catch that last part because it's so important because it shows us that the ethic of the upside-down kingdom of God is not that the powerful and the mighty lead, but the ethic of the upside-down kingdom of God is that the lowly, the needy, and the humble will actually inherit and rule in God's kingdom. It is not the boastful and the prideful like King Nebuchadnezzar. It is the people who are able to say, I am truly in need I am truly dependent because there's a depravity that I feel and I I live in and God is the only remedy to that depravity. In other words, my friends, it's really okay to be needy. It really is. Quite honestly, for me personally, I am very tired of hearing about this, this machismo type of Christianity that, that puffs up the ego, that puffs up the chest, which, yes, we should be confident in our salvation in the Lord. But that is antith- antithetical, in my opinion, to the needy posture that we are called to have, the dependent posture we are called to have before a mighty God. It is okay to be needy because in the upside-down kingdom of God, the lowly, the needy, and the humble will inherit and rule in God's kingdom. When you look at the interpretation of Daniel 4, one of the things you can pull away is that God loves. Let me make this very clear for us. God loves to chop down arrogant and proud kingdoms. He loves to do it. God brings down the arrogant and the proud, and he uplifts those who are weak and low. Please read Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, and you will find that conclusion. So after all this happens, the interpretation is given. Daniel says, gives advice to the king. Verse 27, Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king, Right, the interpretation, right? May my advice be, see, uh, seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Daniel believes that King Nebuchadnezzar can make Babylon a place where life exists. If only he is to humble himself to care for the needy to care for those who have faced injustice by doing what is right according to God's ways. And then all the interpretation comes to life, right? We read that all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And what we see when you read further is that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, actually his sanity actually returns to him. And surprisingly in the story, he ends up praising God and says this wild truth. Verse 34 through 35, he says this, for his, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? The guy who was boasting on his rooftop patio, right? About his kingdom being amazing. Babylon, the great, he says this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody, not even King Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the Babylonian empire. King Nebuchadnezzar's heart has changed. I want to recall us back to the Renaissance philosopher Marsilio Ficino's comment on Narcissus at the end. It was this, this curse of Narcissus is immobilization, not out of love for himself, but out of dependency upon his image. It was a dependency upon the self to solve the problems that the self deals with. And at the end of the day, that led him to puff up his chest, to puff up his ego, to puff up his pride. In Daniel 3, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar, he built a statue, 90-foot statue made of gold of himself to be worshipped. And then Daniel 4, we see a large shift in who he is dependent on. And this is the revelation and the conclusion that King Nebuchadnezzar ends with. Verse 37, and we'll close with this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Come on. Did King Nebuchadnezzar switch his allegiance from himself to the God of the Jews, to Jehovah, to the God that you and I worship? Some actually, a lot of scholars and theologians actually say that um, he did not. <laughs> what? what are, you, are we reading the same Bible? Personally, for me, I believe that King Nebuchadnezzar did have a heart change. And that last sentence proves it. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. That revelation does not come just willy-nilly. At least in the, with the gravitas that it is said here after all that King Nebuchadnezzar has experienced, he comes to the conclusion of he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Can you say that for your own life? Especially for those of us in our church family who identify, who are Christians, who have given your faith, your allegiance to Jesus Christ and Christ alone, can you say that Christ has humbled your pride? Can you ask yourself, in the moments I am prideful, in the moments where I need to puff up my ego, can you ask yourself, why am I doing that in the first place? Is there a point of shame? Is there a point of guilt that is leading you to try to solve that issue on your own that you yourself have become the solution to your own problems? Or can you humble yourself 
and submit your life and show your neediness and dependence to God? Because my friends, let me tell you and remind you, it is a-okay to be needy in front of God. He desires that. You see, the story of King Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel 4, at the end of the day, is that God is in control, and he has been, as King Nebuchadnezzar says, from generation to generation. So you can let go of that control. Not like let go, let God. I think that's like kind of bad theology, but you can let go of control at the very least. And you can let go of control by letting go of the pride that you may carry. And you can let go of the pride that you may carry by giving your shame and guilt to Jesus. Because the story of the gospel is that Christ died on the cross for the very sin that produces shame and guilt for us. And as we sang earlier today, it is finished to tell us die that the work of the cross, that the work of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, it is finished. You can leave your shame and your guilt at the cross. You can lose that ego. You can lose that pride. You can lose that narcissism. You can just leave it at the foot of the cross. Jesus wants to take that, and he does take that for you. For those of us in this room who do not prescribe to the Christian worldview and faith and and do not believe in the gospel, Genuine humility begins with acknowledging your neediness for help. The current ways of the world is is to say, well, it's all about you. You can solve your own issues. Look inward. Look so much inward until you find yourself. But the way of Jesus that I want to invite you to perhaps consider is stop looking inward, but just bring your neediness to Jesus, submit yourself to the ultimate helpfulness of God through Jesus Christ because he is the only remedy to the sin that you may be battling and struggling with. Let me pray for us as we close our time together. I think pride is something that can creep up on all of us, including myself, especially myself. I mean, I'm on stage here talking to people. Come on, like that doesn't get to your mind. Like, can you, like, let's, let's pray for that, yeah? Because <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> let's pray. Lord, would you truly quench any level of pride and narcissism we may experience, Lord? May you remove any thoughts from our mind, from our psyche, from our heart that says, You can solve your own issues. You can be the God of your own life. Lord, we we just repent of that, Lord, if we've ever had that thought, that we can just walk in our own morals that we may construct. I pray, Father, that you would help us to submit ourselves to your ways, the ways of Jesus to be lowly and gentle, to be humble as you, Philippians 2, Lord, as you condescended from heaven, as God to man, and you humbled yourself on that cross, may we, O oh Lord, represent and have that same spirit 
as we walk this life, as we walk this journey with you and with others, fill us, Lord, with humility. And may that humility lead us to faithfulness and utter dependency upon you, O Lord. I pray that for my church family. I pray that for myself and all of our pastors. All this stuff can get to our heads, Lord. May you humble us, Father, always. May we not be puffed up with pride thinking that that we can lead your church here, Lord. We submit it to you because this has always been your church, oh God. This is our prayer because we know this is difficult. Help us, Lord, in this way. And we pray this, Father, in your son's name. Amen.